Advent in the detail, in which we are looking at different angles of the narratives contained in Matthew the Evangelist's Gospel. We explore how often little recognized details, unrecognized or perhaps passed over for the sake of other more salient important points, how these little details contribute to the wonder and the fullness of God's redemption through Jesus Christ, a redemption that found its beginning in a real way in the incarnation of this God-man. And last Sunday, we examined how Matthew connected Herod the Great with his predecessors from the line of the serpent. Yes, he was from the seed of the serpent, all those who side with that serpent, all those who side with Satan, and in their enmity against God, seek to oppress his people, seek to oppress his truth, and instead to thwart his promises of, of redemption. But what we saw is that despite Herod's attempts, he, like his master, possessed only limited knowledge. He did not know everything, and the recourse to which he could go, to Satan himself, could not give him the adequate knowledge and resources to be able to crush the serpent's bane we talked about last week, to crush the Christ in his infancy, that one who represents the seed of the woman, that promised one from of old, the promise that was even given to Adam and Eve after their fall in the garden, that one would grow, would come from their line to crush the head of the serpent, a hope against all hope in the face of that time when Adam, Adam and Eve had even sided with him. God had promised to provide enmity in the line of Adam and Eve, one that would come and complete redemption from that fall. And that's Jesus. Nonetheless, despite this, in his cruelty, in Herod's abounding cruelty, he struck down many innocents. Remember, he struck down those innocents in the area of Bethlehem and its surrounding region. And why he did so, it showed that the natural end what we can expect to come from a course and a path of sin and evil is only destruction and death. It doesn't care. It doesn't matter who it is in its way. Instead, sin and evil seek to destroy, seek to take that which is beautiful and precious of all ages, animate or inanimate, and to destroy and crush it, as Herod did so in Bethlehem those years ago. But even in the midst of this atrocity, even in the midst of this sorrow, this is palpable and tangible as it comes through the text. You can hear the mothers weeping over their children that have been taken from them long ago. In the midst of this sorrow that exemplifies the mourning and the turmoil that we suffer as mortal flesh. Matthew quoted from Jeremiah 31. There he declared that there was a hope for God's people, a hope in this darkness, a hope in this sin, a hope in the evil of this world. Not just in Jeremiah's context, in the return from a Babylonian exile, but a greater hope than that, a hope of salvation from sin and death by the very one who had escaped the clutches of the serpent, the clutches of Herod. Remember what he said, what Jeremiah said? He said, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, with God's people, the Old Testament church, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand 
to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the next step toward the fulfillment of this promise that was issued from Jeremiah and found its completion in Christ is that God brings his true son, this Christ, Jesus, out of Egypt according to a dream in which the angel declares to Joseph that he is to return to the land of Israel because Herod has died and those who sought the child's life are dead from our text this morning. Now scholarship largely agree that Herod's death came shortly after the massacre of these infants. And to put it mildly, it came neither swiftly nor pleasantly. Listen to how Josephus, the roughly contemporary ancient Jewish historian, recounts Herod's death. He says, but now Herod's distemper greatly increased upon him after a severe manner. And this by God's judgment upon him for his sins, for a fire glowed in him slowly which did not so much appear to, the, to touch outwardly as it augmented his pains inwardly. For it brought upon him a vehement appetite to eating, which he could not avoid to supply with one sort of food or other. His entrails were also exulcerated, and the chief violence of his pain lay on his colon. And aqueous, I, mean, I don't know what that is, right? And aqueous and transparent liquor also settled itself about his feet. I don't, that, that sounds horrible. And a like matter afflicted him at the bottom of his belly. Nay, farther, it's not done yet. His privy member was putrefied and produced worms. And when he sat upright, he had a difficulty of breathing, which was very loathsome, on account of the stench of his breath and the quickness of its return. He had also convulsions in all parts of his body, which increased his strength to an insufferable degree. Yet was he still in hopes of recovery, though his affliction seemed greater than anyone could bear. That sounds horrible. I mean, it just sounds so bad that as a matter of fact, it became known as Herod's ailment or Herod's disease. This was the fate that remained for the man massacred those infants. Bethlehem. And there's a lesson there. Now you think, what could be the lesson from that? Um, it's not necessarily Josephus' lesson of God's judgment on Herod for his sin. I mean, in general, yes. We can say that in general, Herod's condition results from the curse of sin and death that came from sin and Adam and Eve's fall in the garden. And it was imputed upon their generations, right? This is the lot for all mankind. It's the curse of sin, living in a fallen world in which pain and sorrow and affliction is not the exception, but is the rule. But there's a true lesson here in Herod. There's a true lesson that Josephus fills in the details that Matthew alludes to with Herod's death. This man has no peace. Because ironically, he has stood against the prince of peace. The only one that had the power not only to cure his physical affliction, his bodily affliction, but more importantly, 
to cure the affliction of his soul. And so because of this, because of this unremedial condition that he has in body and spirit, because of this enmity against God, which he has manifested time and time again according to his cruelty, he clings to life with an iron-like grip. Because what awaits him is the same fate that awaits his father, his spiritual father, the serpent, the dragon, which is the lake of fire, which is judgment and wrath. This is a common refrain throughout the life of the church and those who are not in it. This is common in that those who have no hope of restoration, who have no hope of life and peace after death, you see what happens. They cling to this world. They won't let it go. They grasp it, even as Herod does, in spite of the pain and the suffering and the affliction that weighs on them. But for the church, what does the Lord say about that? What do we learn from Herod's grip upon life in the face of such pain and suffering? Well, the Lord reveals that through the providence of his will, when it's time for the saints to pass from this mortal coil, they act not as those who are bound to this earth as their only hope and their only joy, but instead as strangers and exiles who desire a better country, a heavenly one. And they accept in peace, knowing that God is not ashamed to be called their God, but instead has prepared and secured for them a heavenly city, a city of peace, a city of plenty, a city that will last. But in the providence of God, it was not time for Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, to endure this type of calling. Right? That time wasn't there yet. Christ would be asked to suffer. He would be asked to act as these strangers and exiles that came before him, pointing toward him, pointing to that time where that real Son of God would traverse this earth toward that cross. But we see that the Lord does not have that as the time for Christ, but instead he intervenes again in the same manner that he had done previously time and time again to preserve his Christ child, to preserve that peace and hope for God's people. Because he visits Joseph in a dream again. You can imagine that Joseph probably desired to bring Jesus and Mary back to Bethlehem or even to Jerusalem. Why wouldn't he do that? He's already seen that Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. He is the one long awaited, long expected to be born the heir of David. He is the royal son. Remember what Glenn read earlier. He is the one whose government and peace shall have no end. So why not bring him to David's royal city, either of birth in Bethlehem or in Jerusalem five miles away, so that he might establish his reign as Messiah, so that he might be received amongst his people as royalty, that he might study in the finest schools under the finest teachers, learning God's law, learning how to rule his people, that he might receive the finest portion in housing and food and society, so that he might be reared to be the true Messiah of God's people, wanting nothing, cultivated and crafted to fulfill the promises that God had given of an eternal government. Why wouldn't Joseph bring him 
to Jerusalem, the epicenter of God's dwelling with man. Well, two things prevent him from doing so. The first thing, from a practical perspective, is that Jerusalem and its environs, remember Bethlehem, like I said, is only five miles southeast of Jerusalem, is little more safe now than it was in Herod's reign. Archelaus, the son of Herod, was much less capable than his father, Herod, but he was similarly wicked and cruel. Even though he didn't carry out his father's wish that on Herod the Great's death, all the prominent men of the Jewish nation be killed so that there would be a proper mourning for their king so that Herod would not die infamously with rejoicing and celebration in the streets, but would instead be go to the grave in mourning and suffering of his people. He didn't carry out that request that was placed upon him by his father. Nonetheless, Josephus also records that over 3,000 people were slaughtered during the time of the Passover during his reign, according to his incompetency and his cruel vengeance upon some type of perceived sedition from the Jewish nation against him because they did not trust him. He was as his father was, cruel and intemperate, prone to vices and wickedness. And he proved that true by time and again enacting cruel retribution upon the Jewish people. So bad that in 6 BC, roughly 10 years after taking up his father's position, slightly less, but nonetheless taking up the majority of his reign, he was deposed and exiled. So that's a practical reason why Joseph does not return to its environs. He doesn't go back to Bethlehem or Jerusalem because a man just as paranoid as his father sits on the throne. But second and more importantly, and this is what Matthew really wants to pound home for us, more importantly, he does not take up residence in Bethlehem or in Jerusalem, but instead in Nazareth in order to fill, fulfill what was spoken by the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, where does that occur in Scripture, that he would be called a Nazarene? Anybody remember? Oh, this is a trick question. You guys are ready for it, right? It doesn't actually occur in Scripture. That's good. I saw Sean shaking his head. You, you knew I was setting you up for that. <laughs> but good, right? You guys are on, on, on top of things here. You're right. That doesn't actually occur in Scripture. Nazareth itself is roughly 65 miles north of Jerusalem. It's in the Galilean hills, about halfway between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee. At this time, it would have had a population anywhere between 100 to 500 people. Estimates are difficult to make. But it would have been smaller than Bethlehem and vastly smaller than a city like Jerusalem. It had no contemporary or historical importance of note for the life of the Jewish people. Notice how here in most recent translations, there are no quotation marks around this clause. We've been reading through Matthew. We've come to expect Matthew to have these themes of promise and fulfillment. And when they are fulfilled, he quotes from Scripture. And normally, he quotes from one prophet, whether it's named like Jeremiah or it's not named. But here, he doesn't do so. Instead, all he says is that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. And he would be called so and he was called so by the prophets. But this actually seems to be the point that Matthew 
is making for us. It's strange and it's unexpected. But that's part of his point here. Because he can't point to just one Old Testament passage where the fulfillment of Jesus being a Nazarene occurs. He can't point to just one passage or one prophet. He doesn't pinpoint one text to indicate God's promise and fulfillment here. But he does so in order to demonstrate that many Old Testament prophets bore witness to this Messiah. A Messiah that would come not from Jerusalem, not from Bethlehem, not from status, not from power, not from wealth, not from plenty, but instead would come from obscurity. And coming from obscurity and low estate would receive consequent scorn and derision. The same treatment endured by Nazarenes before him and Nazarenes after him. Even Jesus' disciple prior to calling him Nathaniel. Do you remember what Nathaniel in the book of John chapter 1? Do you remember what he says when he hears that this Jesus, the Messiah, comes from Nazareth? Do you remember his words? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a place of obscurity and unimportance. The last place that anybody would look to find somebody important. To find somebody who would not just lead men, but lead men out of the condition of oppression. Most importantly, from their sins. It was a place of scorn, derision, really a place of nobodies. But listen how the prophets declared, as Matthew describes to us, listen how the prophets declared the Messiah would be treated. This is David speaking in Psalm 22. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Isaiah 53 says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. As Isaiah says elsewhere, this Messiah, he proceeded from a shoot, from a tree that had been hacked at, that had been cut down time and again, that had been leveled generation after generation. And part of God's plan for his abasement included origins of obscurity and a lowly birth. This is why he would be called a Nazarene. Because the Messiah would suffer every indignity, social, economic, political, personal, and everything in between, on his way to his greatest indignity, rejection by his own people that he came to save, by the most foul 
and cursed form of death on a cross when even his own heavenly father would forsake him and pour out his wrath upon him. This is why he was called a Nazarene. It was Jesus' lot to suffer. It was Jesus' lot to come from a place where nobody would look and nobody would expect. A place where the world sees and declares it only as foolishness. And this scorn continued to his followers. It didn't stop with Jesus. You see, that scorn carried over. Hear the scorn in the serving girl's voice when she identifies Peter as a friend to Jesus of Nazareth. In Matthew 26, on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. Or the derision in Tertullus' accusation on behalf of the Jews in the Sanhedrin, as he labels Paul, the apostle, as a ringleader to the sect of the Nazarenes in Acts 24. You can hear the derision there. This is a prominent man in Jerusalem with the power and might of the Jewish nation behind him, both in its polity but also in its church, calling this upstart rebel in Acts 24, calling this one who is rousing the crowd, according to his accusation, as a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, a nobody leading nobodies from nowhere into nothing. Unless you think otherwise, that scorn and that derision did not stop with the early apostles. That is the theme that continues on throughout the life of Christ's church. Two things we can note from this. Two applications come to mind. First, this is the way that the Lord ordinarily works. If he would work this way through his Savior, we should expect him to work out his plan of redemption through the church in the same manner, using obscure tools to accomplish his redemption. Wasn't it a Moabite widow without money in a foreign land, her husband dead, no prospects, no hope, no future, who went to a foreign land to sustain and preserve the promises that God had given of redemption. It was a shepherd who would become king, the last born in his family. And it was a shepherd from Tekoa, Amos, who would speak to kings. A young girl from Nazareth would bear the Messiah, somebody that nobody knew. Fishermen would be Christ's apostles bearing his good news of salvation to all the ends of the earth. Someone who was accused of poor and sloppy speech would give arguably some of the most famous gospel addresses in history to the men of Israel and the men of Athens. A wayward Gnostic entrapped in heresy, Augustine, with severe vices and weaknesses, not to mention a well-meaning, but overbearing mother would instruct Christ's church in the depths of his grace. It would be a poor bohemian priest who came from nothing, who had joined the church really only to raise his standing in society. It would be this man who would stand against popes and councils to recapture the authority of scripture in their lives and be burned at the stake before it. This was John Huss. It would be a German monk with borderline personality disorder who would stand 
before an imperial diet, as we learned in Sunday school this morning, with all of the might of the Holy Roman Empire arrayed against him. And he would take a stand for the doctrine that God justifies sinners. It was a soft-spoken pastor and theologian who was unable to hold a position for very long. Everywhere he went, he wasn't particularly well-liked or wanted. He would contribute some of the greatest theological works to the church and to preach arguably his most famous sermon in the last few hundred years, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It was the son of dairy farmers who would lead crusades across this nation, across this world, who would counsel kings and presidents, calling them to repent of their sins and to form their lives according to the righteousness that God had laid out in Scripture. There was Raymond. You see, all these stories, they're just common change in the leaf of the people of God. What the world considers foolishness and unimportant is God's wisdom revealed to take obscure, unimportant, unwanted, unlooked-for tools that in and of themselves are crude and rough and have nothing to offer and instead to shape his people, to shape this world, to shape our faith and to call us to be a part of the body of Christ, to work wonders. And then there's a second application that we can see. The second application is that these obscure tools, you and me, the Billy Grahams, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luthers, all of us in the line of faith from beginning to end in the church of God are called to suffer like Christ. And I don't know the specifics of what the Lord has called for each and every individual. None of us know that. That only comes according to his revealed will. But Jesus promised that those who would follow him will be hated for his name's sake. And the apostles affirm this truth both in their lives as well as their words, such that Paul could write to the Philippians that it had been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You see, in the world's eyes, Jesus was just a Nazarite, scorned and hated, a Jew from a backwater town who started some type of rebellion and was quashed by the authorities for his trouble. So how much more should his followers expect to bear the same trial and travail as their Savior? It's our lot, but it's also our privilege. Because as we do so, the author of Hebrews reminds us, as we persevere in this suffering, as we persevere in this scorn and this shame, which will only increase with time. As we persevere in this, we prove that God is not ashamed to be our God and call us his sons and daughters. Let's pray.